In November 1930, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera get on a train in Mexico City. Frida is 23, Diego is 43. They've been married for the first time just over a year. The train heads west to Guadalajara, and then to the coast, to Mazatlan and Culiacan, and then to Nogales at the border of Arizona. The border, Frida writes to her mother, is just a wire fence separating Nogales, Sonora from Nogales, Arizona. But you could say that it's all the same. They head west to Los Angeles and up the California coast. Frida, sitting on the train, takes out a piece of paper. She draws a row of skyscrapers, and in front of them, the ocean. And then herself, a self-portrait in the city. On November 10, Frida and Diego step off the train in San Francisco. I was almost frightened to realize, Diego would say of Frida's drawing, that her imagined city was the very one we were now seeing for the first time. They have never been to the United States before, but Frida has long idealized San Francisco, the city of the world, she calls it. And now, in a cold breeze and fog, she's there. It's a trip Diego has thought about for years, going north, to make art and money and love if he can get it, but also to make his vision of America a reality. North America, Central America, South America, it's all one Pan-America to him, united by indigenous culture and colonialism. I mean by America, he says, the territory included between the two ice barriers of the two poles, a fig for your barriers of wire and frontier guards. Frida gets off the train wearing a long dark skirt and a beret and a short jacket like a matador's. Diego in a suit and work boots and a big Stetson cowboy hat. A photographer snaps their photo, reporters shout their questions, and then they're off. On an American odyssey they expect will last six months or so but instead lasts the better part of three years. And, in some ways, is still going on. This is The Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, during Hispanic Heritage Month, it's a story of solidarity and independence, unity and discord. Do we live together or adjacent? It's the story of Frida and Diego, and the story of America, I'm Tim Gehring. There are a lot of stories about Diego Rivera in his early years, most of them false. That he fought in the Mexican Revolution. That he plotted to kill the dictator Porfirio Diaz. But no. And no. Diego had been a child prodigy in Mexico City drawing on the walls of his house, off to art school at age 10, and then to Europe. 
When the revolution begins in 1910, Diego is in Paris, painting with Picasso and Bodigliani, getting into fights and duels, taking up with a Russian painter named Angelina. He's an artist, and he's good at it. But eventually, he wonders if there isn't some higher purpose, some way to put his art to use. A friend in Paris had told him, there is no hero of art who is not at the same time a hero of knowledge and a human hero of the heart. When he feels living within him, the heart and space and all that moves and all that lives, even all that seems dead, even to the very tissue of the stones, how could it be that he should not feel the life of the emotions, the passions, the sufferings of those who are made as he is? His art reveals to the men of today the solidarity of their... Well, you get the idea. Diego wants to be that hero of art. In the summer of 1915, he makes a painting called Pasaje Zapatista, Zapatista Landscape, a picture of a guerrilla fighter with his rifle and sombrero in the Mexican countryside. Diego has never seen the Mexican Revolution, except in photographs, and yet he's made a picture full of heart and solidarity. Everything shown from multiple viewpoints, in the Cubist style, right? Picasso's style. And, well, Picasso likes it. He likes it so much, the story goes, that one day Diego goes over to Picasso's studio, and Picasso is painting a piece called Man Seated in Shrubbery that looks a lot like the Zapatista in the Mexican desert. Diego is furioso, even though he's borrowed the entire Cubist concept from Picasso, right? I am sick of Pablo, Diego says. If he pinches something from me, people will rave about Picasso, Picasso. As for me, they'll say I copy him. One day, either I'll chuck him out or I'll shove off to Mexico. This story, apparently, is true. People call it the fight that breaks apart Cubism. A divorce where everyone takes a side. And most people take Picasso's. So, one day, after 13 years of trying to be a European, Diego does leave Paris, and Picasso, and even Angelina, his Russian common-law wife, and he shoves off back to Mexico. Diego may have failed at becoming European, as one biographer puts it, but when he returns to Mexico in 1921, he's not exactly in touch with his roots either. On my arrival in Mexico, he would later write, I was struck by the inexpressible beauty of that rich and severe, wretched and exuberant land. Maybe so. But his way of expressing this inexpressible beauty is still very European. And here's this new government in Mexico, finally free of Spain's influence, trying to distance the country from Europe. Only a fool like Rivera, who was in France during the Mexican Revolution, can carry on about the revolution, gripes his fellow artist, José Clemente Orozco. José Vascaleros, the government's education minister, who helped lure Diego back to Mexico, also has concerns. He gives Diego jobs like 
art advisor to the Department of Publications and director of propaganda trains, whatever that is, that don't actually require him to make art. When he finally does give Diego a wall to paint, making a fresco in the auditorium of the National Preparatory School at the University of Mexico, he watches him closely. Diego spends months calculating the curves of the walls, the ideal proportions. For a full year, he works on this mural, a thousand square feet of art. He calls it creation. And yet, even before he's finished, Diego is unsatisfied. And so is Vascaleros. There's something too European about it. It looks more Italian than Mexican, more abstract and sedate than what the country has just gone through. So, in November 1922, Vascaleros tells Diego to get out, leave Mexico City, go to Oaxaca in the south of the country. And he does. He goes to Tehuantepec, an almost legendary town on the old pre-Columbian trade route between Central America and Central Mexico, the center of Zapotec culture. And here, Diego is transformed. He finds his vision of a new Mexico, same as the old. The pre-Columbian artifacts he starts to collect, the clothes of the women in their weeples and long skirts, the candlelit velas or processions through the streets. And when he comes back to Mexico City, this is what he paints. On the walls of the National Palace and the Public Education Building, a Mexico that never stopped being Mexico, centering the indigenous in a kind of socialist paradise. Now, he writes, there begins to dawn a hope in the eyes of the children And the very young have discovered on the slate of the Mexican sky a great star which shines red and is five-pointed. Like the features of the face of the moon, there can be discerned on it a hammer and sickle. And emissaries have come, saying that it is a presage of the birth of a new order and a new law, without false priests who enrich themselves, without greedy rich who make the people die, though they might easily on what they produce with their hands. Live in love and loving the sun and the flowers again on condition of bringing the news to all their brothers in misery on the American continent. Well, you get the idea. Mexico, one writer notes, has begun its Mexicanization. In 1926, a group of artists from San Francisco traveled to Mexico City to visit Diego in his studio, which is becoming, quote, an art shrine, as one newspaper puts it. The other end of the rainbow for San Francisco used to be Paris, notes the San Francisco Chronicle, but it has now moved to Mexico City. One of these artists is Ralph Stackpole, a sculptor, who returns to California with a painting by Rivera of a Mexican woman and child. He gives it to William Gerstel, president of the San Francisco Art Commission, who apparently doesn't care for it, like, at all. The woman's features are coarse, he says. The child looks like a, quote, large doll loosely stuffed with flour. He hangs it next to a Matisse on his wall and forgets about it. But 
over the next few days. He can't take his eyes off it. I began to feel, he writes, that what I had taken for a crude daub had more power and beauty than any other of my pictures. Gerstel offers Rivera $1,500 to paint a mural at the California School of Fine Arts. But the offer just hangs out there for years as Rivera is busy Mexicanizing Mexico. He gets another offer to paint a mural on the Pacific Stock Exchange in San Francisco. And still he lets it hang there. Finally, in 1929, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico offers Rivera $12,000 of his own money to paint a mural in the Palace of Cortez, the Spanish conquistador, right, in the city of Cuernavaca. This ambassador, Dwight Morrow, is the father-in-law of Charles Lindbergh and a former partner of J.P. Morgan, a business guy, appointed by Calvin Coolidge to cool things off between Mexico and the U.S. The better for trade, right? And he's good at it. A diplomat who's actually diplomatic. He, too, has a Pan-American vision. One continent under business. Well, Diego is happy to take Moro's money. Because it's the Palace of Cortez, and because Moro has a great house in Cuernavaca where he can stay while he works. And because he needs the money. By 1929, Diego has married and divorced his second wife, Lupe, and married his third, Frida Kahlo. A former art student at the preparatory school he painted back in 1922, right? Maybe you remember the scene in Frida, the movie, where she taunts him in the auditorium. Watch out, Diego! Lupe's coming back! (laughs) Yeah, that probably never happened. But Diego, when he marries her does promise to pay off the mortgage of the family's famous blue house. So, he takes the $12,000, paints one of the best murals of his life in Cuernavaca, and agrees to go north. California, Diego would say, is the ideal intermediate step between Mexico and the United States. Historically Hispanic, right across the border. Except the U.S. turns down his visa at first because he's a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, right, and not shy about it. But the San Francisco Art Association telegrams a government official, essentially, should Diego hold anti-American views, quote, the best way to cure them is to let him see how misinformed he is on American conditions. One week later, the visa is approved. And when Diego and Frida come, in the fall of 1930, they move into Ralph Stockpole's studio in San Francisco. That afternoon, they're invited to cocktails at the home of the director of the Stock Exchange, a palatial place with a terrace overlooking the bay. The director speaks Spanish better than I do, and six or seven other languages as well, Frida gushes to her mom. They have treated Diego very well, and they like me very much. On November 15, just a few days after their arrival, 120 of Diego's artworks are shown at the Legion of Honor. In December, he lectures at the museum, offering his vision of a, quote, new American art. 
Don't look for inspiration in Europe, he tells artists. Study the Americas, their art and architecture. And when the day comes that, quote, northern and southern cultures unite, each fructifying the other, then in truth will factories and artists together form the new American culture. Diego is getting so much attention, Frida says, that he barely has time to go to the bathroom. But Frida, too, is getting plenty of love. Ansel Adams and Edward Weston, the photographers, ask her to pose. A local writer pens a play about her called The Queen of Montgomery Street, which is terrible, but, well, here's a sample. Come over right way. I, Frida, the first command you. But Frida, I have already had supper. Eat another. But you made me eat two lunches. I shall make you eat two breakfasts, too. I am the queen, do you hear? Maybe it's a comedy. I don't know. Maybe Frida really did make people eat a lot. In any case, she's really leaning into her personality and her art, roaming through Chinatown to find fabric for her clothes, making portraits of the society folks they're meeting. The following spring, Diego finishes the mural at the Stock Exchange, which he calls Allegory of California, a robust, nude woman reclining on the earth, surrounded by mines and farms. And then he's invited to stay at the country house of a collector, south of the city. Here, too, he paints a pastoral picture in the family's outdoor dining area. Almond trees and Mexican workers. Diego may not like capitalism, but he seems to like capitalists just fine, and they like him. In early 1931, Diego gets an offer from MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, right? The museum has had only one show so far focused on a single artist, Matisse, the ultimate European. Now, they're ready for the ultimate American. Would Diego be open to being that guy? Yes. Yes, he would. In the fall of 1931, Diego and Frida come to New York six weeks before the show opens at MoMA. Diego works in the museum, creating eight new murals, five of Mexico and three of New York. He works until four in the morning, sleeps for 15 minutes, works again. When the show opens, the New York murals still aren't ready yet, but the Mexican ones are. Mostly images of peasant workers, colonial abuses, the revolution, Zapata and his machete. And it's a huge hit bigger than Matisse, breaking attendance records for the two-year-old museum. Diego keeps working, visiting construction sites all over Manhattan. Skyscraper after skyscraper are going up, including the 102 stories of the Empire State Building. The first New York murals are construction scenes, men with drills and trucks. We are the catalysts that transform the raw materials of Earth into energy, Diego tells an assistant. We are a continuation of the geologic process. Of course, it's not construction workers that Diego and Frida are meeting in America, right? It's people like John D. Rockefeller Jr. and his daughter Abby who helped make the MoMA show happen. 
It was Abby, apparently, who suggested putting Zapata in the mural. More than a year in, Diego and Frida still aren't sure what to think. Are these patrons patronizing them, or are they patronizing? It's a struggle for Diego, Frida writes. After working all day, every day, he has to get dressed up in a tuxedo and go out to dine with a bunch of pensadores. Pensadores meaning intellectuals or thinkers. Though the way she writes it, she also means pendejos, idiots. Mexico and the U.S. may have thrown off colonialism. But in the U.S. at least, as the Depression deepens, it's clear there's a different kind of aristocracy. Everyone has received us very well, Frida writes. The Rockefellers invited us to lunch and dinner. The old man's son is very intelligent and likable. But no matter what, one just can't enter into this class of society. And as far as I'm concerned, I couldn't care less. Now, the Communist Party never liked the idea of Diego going to the U.S., painting for rich people. And in New York, their worst fears seemed to be coming true. In January 1932, during the MoMA show, Diego speaks to a local Marxist club, whose slogan is, Art is a Weapon in the Class Struggle. But the group releases an apology afterward to its members. In his speech, it says, he made no mention of his own unprincipled activities as a supporter of American imperialism. Rivera was exposed as a renegade, it goes on. And it was also shown that Rivera's renegacy has been reflected in his art, which has grown increasingly sterile as he has drawn further away from the working class, which once made him articulate, and which transformed a feeble imitator of Picasso into a powerful artist of the revolution. Ouch. It's becoming increasingly hard for Diego and Frida not to bite the hand that feeds them. And yet, when the Detroit Institute of Arts, later that year, commissions him to paint 27 panels of frescoes inside the museum, he accepts and spends eight months working 15-hour days, three months just touring the Ford assembly plants and other industry in Detroit, marveling at the machinery. And when the Rockefellers invite him back to New York in 1933 to paint a panel in the new Rockefeller Center, he accepts this too. The theme, as the Rockefellers describe it, is, quote, man at the crossroads, and looking with uncertainty, but with hope and high vision to the choosing of a course leading to a new and better future. Rivera suggests a panel depicting capitalism on one side and socialism on the other, and a man in the middle, literally the man at the crossroads. He shows a sketch to Abby Rockefeller. On the capitalist side, men in soup lines and soldiers in gas masks. On the socialist side, Lenin's tomb and marching revolutionaries and strong female athletes. The family says, sure. But that's not all Diego paints. As he's working, all the pressures come to bear on Diego. The rich people paying him, the communists calling him a sellout, 
and Frida, who just wants to go home. Diego adds an image of a speakeasy, men and women dressed up with drinks, and above them, a group of germs floating around, specifically the germs of syphilis and gonorrhea, gangrene and tetanus. At the last minute, he also adds a portrait of Vladimir Lenin himself, very much alive. It's hard to say which part the Rockefellers most object to. Lenin is offensive, but the speakeasy scene might be worse. Because John Jr. is a Baptist teetotaler who supported prohibition, but also because one of the figures, right under the cloud of germs, looks a lot like him. Jr. tells his father, then in his 90s and the richest man in America, that Diego's mural is, quote, obscene, and in the judgment of Rockefeller Center, an offense to good taste. He asked Diego for one simple change. Take out Lenin. Diego says, no. So, on May 9, 1933, the head contractor walks up to the mural, calls Diego to come down from the scaffolding, and asks him one more time if he'll paint over Lenin. No, he won't. The contractor hands Diego a check and asks him to leave. A curtain is dropped over the mural. Rockefeller Center is locked, and police on horseback guard the entrance. Frida's father had long predicted that her American odyssey would end this way, when the gringos told Diego, Now, Ponciano, go back home. We can't stand you anymore. Diego had been slated to make a mural in Chicago for the General Motors building at the upcoming World's Fair and in Minneapolis, apparently. No longer. Three days after the Rockefeller incident, he gets a telegram from the Chicago architect. Have instructions from General Motors executives. Stop. Discontinue with Chicago mural. Stop. In the Frida film, she urges Diego to leave, right? With my tail between my legs, he asks her. We don't belong here, she says. I am tired of these people, and I am tired of who you are around them. In fact, Diego began an affair almost as soon as he got off the train in San Francisco with Helen Wills, a tennis player with short brown hair who won gold at the 1924 Olympics. She was the model for the reclining nude in his mural at the Stock Exchange. She was, he said, all that was beautiful in California womanhood. Well, when they get back to Mexico City in 1934, Frida and Diego soon go their separate ways. A few years later, they divorce. The world is changing. Hitler is on the march. Stalin has proven a mass murderer. Trotsky, who stayed with Frida and Diego, is dead, an ice pick in his head. Kahlo is called in for questioning. There are a lot of questions these days and very few answers. But in 1940, when the same architect who commissioned Diego to paint the stock exchange asked him to return for the Golden Gate International Exposition, he agrees. 
I would like to know, Diego asks, if you want a Mexican or an American subject. In the end, he goes for both. For years, he says, I have felt that the real art of the Americas comes as a result of the fusion of the machinism and new creative power of the North with the tradition rooted in the soil of the South. He calls the mural Pan-American Unity. An American diver in a white suit and cap flips backward into a pool while a Mexican sculptor carves the feathered serpent deity Quetzalcoatl. A strong white fist wrapped in a U.S. flag crushes a puny wrist with a swastika tattoo. Frida, who's been hospitalized in San Francisco, writes her ex-husband, Diego Miamor. Remember that once you finish the fresco, we will be together forever, once and for all, without arguments or anything, only to love one another. Behave yourself. Of course, he doesn't, right? He paints Frida into the mural and himself next to her, holding hands with Paulette Goddard, Charlie Chaplin's wife. Rivera has been sleeping with her too. This time, it doesn't seem to matter. Between Frida and Diego, there has always been solidarity, even if it isn't obvious why. A short time later, at the San Francisco City Hall, they marry each other again. Sé de tu traición, sé que al mentir ni lo pensarás. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, with generous support from Ameriprise Financial. Check them out at Ameriprise.com. Check us out at artsmia.org. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us and subscribe wherever you get your pods so you never miss an episode. I'm Tim Geary. See you in a month, and thanks very much for listening.